1979, the first issue of Fangoria magazine was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever with each issue, bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with that show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. And I sound okay? Oh, sorry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you using a different mic, and I just want to make sure that I sound good. Already causing problems. Yeah, sure. you're, you're, Already you're, causing problems. You're sounding a little a little loud, but not uh, any louder than usual. So. Oh, <laughs> oh damn. Right. And you just not, blew out the speakers on that one. Yep. We're going to have to leave all of this in. You understand that. <laughs> all right. uh, it's I, not a Mallory episode. It's descending into chaos. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We've got a returning KingCast guest on the show today, and boy, are we glad to have her back, or we were until we started recording. She's already turned this into a grotesque charade. Uh, She's the author of the best-selling Lady from the Black Lagoon, this month's Girly Drinks, and the original source of, the Ch- of Chuck Buggins' introduction to the increasingly weird mythology of the very podcast you're listening to right now. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back five-timer Mallory O'Meara <laughs> to the KingCast stage. How are you doing, Mal? You know, my boyfriend called me Chut Buggins' mother last night, and I'm really <laughs> uncomfortable with that. I, I just feel like that's not the relationship I have to Chut. I just, what do you yeah. think your relationship is? Uh, maybe, maybe I think maybe I just discovered him. I'm, I'm I feel like more like Chut's friend than his mm. mom. It's I definitely kinda, not a maternal relationship. I kind of picture you almost like uh, Chut Buggins' Doctor Loomis. Like you're just constantly <laughs> yes, okay. chasing him I'm down, like down looking for, for him. I'm yeah. looking for his Sebring. I'm looking for his mullet flapping around every corner. Yeah, that's that's definitely the relationship I have. Chut, Chut has come to your town, Sheriff. <laughs> we well, we have established that Chut is is respectful of women, despite his hard partying ways. Mm-hmm. Could he True. not? Could he not have been a former beau? Is my question. Uh, I don't find my. I, I, Chut's too powerful. I, I, he's. Just, <laughs> I don't. It's hard to be sexually attracted to Chut. I know that there are people out there who are sexually attracted to Chut, but uh, wait, how do you know that? Uh, because I use Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and there's people telling you they want to smash shit. Chut. Yeah, I, I, I get tagged in some weird ass shit, dude. I you mean, know. you know what? I'd rather them be horny for Chut than horny for some other things people are horny for. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, you thought I was going to take that ball and run with it, and I just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Other people are dealing are doing it for you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, Twitter is a hotbed of that sort of thing. 
Um, sure is. You, you got a new book out. Early I do. Drink. We're I excited do. about this. I want to read it. So I know you've been on the promo tour for that. So you're probably sick of getting a lot of the same questions. Uh, what is what has someone not asked you about this book that you'd be curious to talk about or interested to talk about? You know, I have actually been, I mean, half the time I do an interview and it's fantastic. And sometimes it's the other half is sometimes not great, but um, I, I don't know. I have, I've been getting asked pretty decent questions. There's nothing mm-hmm. that I feel a burning urge to talk about. Um, I should probably say that. So girly drinks is um, it is the world history of women drinking, making and serving bo- booze from the beginning of time until now. Um, and it is, it's set up chronologically through all the time periods. And it's not just cocktail history, it's beer and wine and basically any type of booze that you can think of. Um, and I wrote it because I was really sick of being a cocktail nerd and not having the, and all the books that I read. None of them had any women's history in them. And uh, so I started to write this book. What about prison wine? That's the kind of booze I can think of. You know what? I actually think there is some stuff about prison wine in there. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> well, then. I also uh, feel like that's not the first time you've asked me that question, Scott. <laughs> really? I feel, I'm like, when's the last time I talked about prison wine? And I want to say it was with you. <laughs> That that does track. That does sound like something. <laughs> Maybe we discussed that back when I was trapped in my house for a week uh, in February. Possibly. <laughs> with Possibly. everything shut down and snow piled as high as the eye could see. Yeah. Yeah. Mallory, do you, uh, you, you know how to make wine in a toilet? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there. I, I would recommend for anyone who's snowed in that there are a lot of other places you can make wine in your home. That is true. Yes. Shoes, for one thing. <laughs> Shoes are a container. I mean, the prison wine is perfect for keeping in a toilet because you can get rid of it really fast. But um, yeah, by drinking it. Um, but I would highly recommend you not. I, I still have, haven't actually made any booze at home. I probably should try doing that, um, but I never have. Your previous book, uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon found you being subjected to some interviews some <laughs> interesting or maybe uh, inappropriate uh, questions and or moments, right? Yeah, I feel like my cho- my, my career choice uh, has sort of led me down the round, road of uh, do- dooming myself to a life of being mansplained, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm a woman on the internet. That's something I deal with anyway. But dealing with it when you've read a whole book about it is a whole different level of... Um, fuckery and it's this the same thing has been happening with uh with girly drinks it's always amazing to me that a journalist can be like ah so author and historian you've written an entire book on the subject but i did a quick google search and uh i don't know if i agree with you (laughs) has that happened oh yeah um the the first chapter of the book is all prehistory and um it's one of the (laughs) right (laughs) which you can still get pregnant dinosaurs and um (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) um and so (laughs) sorry i'm trying to make this horny you're trying real hard to make this horny i tried so hard (laughs) to have this be serious but it's clearly not working out uh so the whole first chapter is about prehistory and the very first known depiction of a drinking person is a twenty-five thousand year old cave painting in france um of a woman drinking mead out of a mead horn she's called the venus of lassel and it's pretty cool. Like it's literally the first first depiction we have of anybody drinking is a woman. 
And for a really, really long time, people didn't realize that she was drinking because the male historians and archaeologists and scholars that were looking at it were so biased and staunch in their beliefs that women don't drink that they were like, oh, well, she's just playing a horn the wrong way. And <laughs> yeah. oh my God. As if somebody would take the time to immortalize the world's shittiest <laughs> horn blower on the side of a cave. And yeah, until some someone was like, you know, I think she's uh she's just drinking out of that meat horn. Uh, but I did an interview recently where someone read the book and of course he he was like, Oh, the Venus of Lossal. So what makes you think that she was drinking? I was like, Oh well, you know, uh, she's drinking. And he's like, well, I, uh, I, I did some Google, Google searching and, uh, seems like people think there's some, some historians who actually think she's a fertility symbol. And I was like, what makes you think she's a, a fertility symbol? Cause she's a fucking lady. And he like had no answer for that, of course. And it's just, it's so, it's so frustrating to me that I can, again, write an entire book on a subject and still journal, male journalists are like, ah, oh, well, you know, I looked it up on the internet five minutes ago, so uh, I can totally have a debate with you. Well, I got, I got to tell you, you got to put, stop putting highlights for children on your uh, press tour lists. You know, yeah, he was six. So uh, that, yeah. that, <laughs> that definitely made it a little difficult. Is she a fertility symbol? <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst thing I've ever heard, Eric. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Well, what are, what else have you been up to since the last time we talked? This is your uh, fifth time on the show. This is my fifth time on the show. Um, I moved out of LA. I, I have this new book coming out. I'm working on a third book, another, uh, actually two books, two more nonfiction books, which is pretty exciting. And um, yeah, I have some other, I have a bunch of cool things to talk about, but I can't. It's, I mean, you guys know, I can't like, they're not a things that haven't been announced yet. So I can't fucking <laughs> right. say anything. It's weird. I mean, I guess it's not in case you just up and don't do the work, you know, and embarrass yourself by announcing something that you, you I'm going to do this and then it doesn't happen. But uh, mm -hmm. it sucks that you got to be, um, you know, not secretive about it. I don't feel like you're trying to be secretive, but just kind of keep a, a lid on it until until you're a certain way into the process. Authors and filmmakers are all naturally full of secrets because we know the second you start talking about it, things are going to go through things. It, I mean, mm -hmm. things fall through so, so much in the entertainment business, whether it's books or films that you'd like, you don't want to say anything until it's like fucking done. Right. There's also, there's also a level where so many of the people that are out there talking about their, the shit they're doing are never really doing that shit either. Oh, it's like you every know? single person who sees that I have tattoos and wants to tell me about the tattoos they want to get. <laughs> yeah. it's the same shit it feels like the people actually doing stuff like tell you about it when it's ready you yes. know where yes. everybody where everybody talks a big game and then it's like hey what about that restaurant you were opening last you know supposed to be last week what happened to that it's like oh well let's talk about the restaurant I'm opening next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's ridiculous. So I just, I never, I never talk about anything until it's like contractor signed right. announcements have been made. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm very excited about girly drinks. I'm definitely going to keep in the vein of um, deep nonfiction dives into subjects that I'm interested in from a women's perspective. Um, but I do have some more, some other things that are coming down the pipeline that I will hopefully be able to talk about soon. But for now, it's brand spanking new nonfiction book. You are keeping very busy. 
Somehow in the pandemic, I wrote almost the, this whole book in the pandemic, and I don't know how, uh, considering the rest of the time was spent watching CNN and eating Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> but I did it. And this is my pandemic book. Oh my it is God. tough to write a international history of booze and bars and bartenders when you can't leave the house. Um, but, you know, that's the power of the library online. Sometimes that Googling pays off. Yes. Yes. Maybe that interviewer was on to something. Yes, I, I'm really looking forward to to his uh, his book about fertility figures. <laughs> Can't wait to read it. Now, uh, you have for your triumphant fifth fifth appearance on this show. Am I the most guested guest on this show? You're up there with uh, Kate Siegel and Mike Flanagan. <laughs> Fantastic. So you may have to battle them at some point, or right. We're- we are going to schedule a cage match uh, probably by the end of the year. I, I think and, I could take I, Flanagan, but I don't think I could take Kate Siegel. You are training right now, though, right? So, I am. So I am. You, I, that's yeah. one of the best things that's happened is that I, um, I'm i a power lifter. And one of the hardest things during the pandemic was not being able to go to my gym. And then we moved out of L.A. up into the mountains. And I finally... I, what I did was I totaled up all the money that I was saving by not paying a monthly gym membership for like a year and a half. And it... It was about exactly the amount of money that I needed to build a home gym in our garage. And um, I hired a trainer and I, I'm back to powerlifting. It's my it's my chut zone. I have a big Lita Ford flag hanging on the wall. Listen to nothing but power metal in there. It's, it's my zone. <laughs> it is really it's my favorite place to be in the house. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and you have brought us a title today that we have never discussed on the show before. I did, and I'm here to defend its honor, and I'm actually very excited that it seems like all three of us are here to defend its honor. Mm. This is true. This is true. I don't I don't know that I will give a full-fledged defense, but it's mostly a defense. Um, this is a title that I read when I was entirely too young to read it and really <laughs> understand the implications of it or the seriousness of the material or really anything. Uh, very, very dumb and, and stupid and young. This one just bounced off of me at the time. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to read that one again. Well, <laughs> in revisiting this, yeah, I, I definitely found a new appreciation for it. And um, I kind of think the, well, I don't know if you could call it backlash, but the uh, the general consensus on this one, I think, may be wrong. Hard agree. Oh, yeah. Hard agree. Well, why are you dancing around it? Why don't we oh, yeah. talk about it? Oh, well, yeah. 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 What's the title, Mallory? So we're talking about Rose Matter, um, which is, I did the same thing when I uh, I read this book probably my late teens, I want to say, and a lot of it completely flew over my head, but I didn't hate it. Uh, But I kind of knew that it was one of the least well-loved Stephen King books. It gets a lot of hate. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about a new title to do, I was like, man, that's definitely a lady-centric book that we haven't talked about, and I would love to revisit it, and I'm so glad that we did. This one hasn't been adapted yet, so this is going to be one of those episodes where we talk about the book as the book. So this is almost this is one of our book club episodes. Perfect. <laughs> Although Hollywood, give me a fucking call. I would love to write this, write an adaptation of Rose Matter. It'd be a rough sit. This Rose Matter movie. <laughs> well, yeah. Although, but it it is rough. But we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how I think it's very interesting that we we're revisiting this particular book at this particular time mm-hmm. because it feels so relevant. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. really does. One of the things um, I was reading some older reviews when this book came out um, before uh, before we started recording, and one of the things that people hate is that they say that because the book is about, you know, 
this woman and she's a battered woman um, as they used to call it in the nineties and mm-hmm. her shit ass husband is a cop and he abuses her and she gets away from him. And the whole book is about him trying to find her and her, you know, trying to make a new life while being pursued by him. And then this whole Greek mythology element where she finds a, I don't know, magical fucking painting that, that saves <laughs> her. Um, yeah. But one of the biggest uh, uh, criticisms of this book is that her husband is over the top. He's super racist. He's super sexist. He's super mm-hmm. homophobic. And I was like, this, the, all these reviews were so clearly written before Twitter was a thing. <laughs> before Twitter was a thing, before 2016 happened. Yes. And everybody kind of like, sh- like shed the veneer of uh all not everybody obviously but everybody on the far right kind of shed the veneer of of uh their racism and homophobia and you know uh, masks uh, off masks came off big time in 2016 uh to to the shock of a lot of moderates and a lot of people on on the left you know it's like it i i think that like i know i count myself as one of those the words just like well i Yes, there is still racism in, you know, pockets of the country, but like overall, you know, we're in a much better place than we were, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, and then, uh, then the MAGA rally started and we're like, mm, I think that m- this might be more of a problem than I thought. Yeah, no shit. Are those tiki torches? Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we were <clears throat> these last four or five years have been all about finding out or for me have been all about finding out like how wrong I was about that shit and just mm-hmm. how like deeply broken shit is. Well, and I, mean, and I, I do think Rose matter would, uh, with a rewrite, you know, I think there's some, some creaky stereotypes in here and, and some, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, some material and- that needs updating, but, uh, I do think it would be, I do think it would land differently now than it did when it came out. Oh, 95. no question. I mean, we everybody has everyone, every woman I know and every, you know, liberal person I know online has a version of Norman in their mentions every day. You mm-hmm. know, I, I can totally see where like pre 2015, 2016 reading this would be like, wow, this guy's, you know, a, a caricature. But he, he, like reading it today, nothing that I mean, and he does some heinous fucking shit, but nothing, none of the things that he says uh, stand out to me as something that you know, it would be like anomalous among like, a, you know, a MAGA rally, like you said. Or the police force, which is, you know, even crazier since he's a cop and just what we've seen in the last few years, especially, you know, I don't know. It, it, you're right. It feels prescient and feels like it, it could have been written in response to what's been on the news the last two years. Oh, especially, well, especially since so much of the terror that Rose feels while she's trying to escape her husband is that he's being protected by the police force back home. You know, he is he has this whole he, he's like the star cop. He's got this whole ring of people to protect him. And that that's you know, there's a lot of scenes in this book where she doesn't want she won't go to the police. She's afraid of talking to the police. And for good reason. Well, I realize that we've gotten this far into it, but haven't actually described the plot, which I think would be very helpful here on this title in particular, because uh, I gather that, you know, uh, maybe this one is less read than other titles. Mallory, would you like to do the honors and tell us what this book is about? Yeah, well, it starts out, you know, here's, here's this woman, she's being abused by this shitty ass cop. And one day, I mean, the book opens with her having a miscarriage because he's beaten her so badly. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, I think it's, 
a really fantastic opener. I mean, it's not a fun read, but it's very powerful, really, really well written. It sucks you into the book right away. And then flash fast forward to nine years later, she's still dealing with this terrible person. She still hasn't had a baby and she sees a drop of her own blood on the bed one day and she realizes I got to get out of here. And she just leaves like no plan, no packing, no nothing. She leaves, gets on a bus, ends up finding herself in a woman's shelter in a city that's far away from where she originally was, um, makes friends there, starts, tries to start her own life. And uh, her husband's obviously not happy about uh, her leaving and, and abandoning him uh, and escaping him really is the better word. And he starts pursuing her trying to find Hmm. what happened to her. And then what happens? (laughs) She spoilers, but (laughs) But Uh, it's going to be impossible to talk about this without talking about the fantastical elements of the story. Yes. Cause one day um, she, she's preparing for her first little apartment that um, the people at the women's shelter hook her up with. And she goes into a, um, a pawn shop wanting to pawn her engagement ring, which her crappy husband uh, assured her was the cost of a Buick, you know, was like this, he told her how, how much he paid for it. And it's really, it's like a cubic zirconia. Like it's not even a real ring. And she's really, you know, angry about it. It's just like one more thing to be angry about. Sure. And uh, she sees this painting of a woman in sort of like a Greek style, reddish purple rose matter colored dress um, on a, on a mountainside, looking at these like sort of Greek kind of Gothic ruins. She felt like has like an almost super, super, supernatural attachment to this painting and the owner of the pawn shop can like uh he agrees to give it give the painting to her in exchange for her ring um he also is like ogling her and like that uh, sort of romance ends up uh between the two of them and she brings this painting home and the painting right off the right off the bat starts changing um things move in the painting she's like again very very drawn to it and the painting ends up giving her powers and uh again there's like all sorts of supernatural elements happen and a part of the book ends up happening inside the painting there's two sections two big sections where she goes inside the painting one she has to face um the a bull in the in the center of a of a ruin to rescue uh rose matter's baby um, it, which is this weird thing where it's like, is it a dream? Is it not a dream kind of thing? Uh, did this actually happen? But then like when she wakes up, she like, uh, I think Rose matter, like gifted her, her armlet or something for doing yeah. it. Right. Yes. So, so, uh, she has the armlet now and, and the painting is changed. So yes, it did happen. Um, but it is paralleled with the, the evil centaur bull thing, you know, mytho- mythological creature that's in there is paralleled with her husband who is getting closer and closer and closer to her. And at some point finds a, uh, a bull mask, which he uses to hide his identity when he's almost caught after, <laughs> nearly like he, he kills a couple of people getting there at that point and nearly kills somebody else doesn't he explode somebody's balls that's the uh <laughs> that's the 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 gay dude on the bench yeah and he like meets him in a park or something and he's pumping him for information and literally grab, quite literally yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite literally he grabs a hold of his balls and you know uh i don't know if they explode but uh I think damage. maybe Those later are... on he explodes somebody's balls. The guy he kills a... in the apartment by biting him. No, maybe. Yeah, it's the guy that that Rose met at the uh, the train station. Right, 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 yeah, right, yeah. right. 
the the one that that sent her to the uh, the woman shelter. Yeah, there's one thing I I, I think I forgot when I because I you know, again I I read it so long ago is that how much of Norman's perspective you get in the book. It's really almost fifty fifty because um, right. you're fo- you're following Norman, who's the husband, as he's um, trying. Like the first thing he does is goes to the bus station where he thinks that she went and and basically tortures people there uh, with immunity because he's a cop um, until he gets finds out which bus that she took and then he goes to that city and starts again he keeps keeps torturing people everywhere he goes he leaves death and pain in his wake and he, while right. looking for information about where rose is you know who who he reminded me of on this reread was this is kind of the this he's cut from the same cloth as the guy that becomes the outsider's familiar in the outsider if you uh, saw that kind of that uh, he the reminds dude with me the of cancer on his neck yeah, he reminds me a whole lot. Every time he goes in that that POV, like the guy in the Outsider is a little, like a smidge more uh, uh, likable, you know, because he is a victim in that situation as well. He's a, a mean asshole and kind of deserves everything he gets, but he also didn't ask for it, you know. So and he's kind of being pushed into what he's doing, uh, whereas Norman is just, you know, not. I, I want to almost said more. Well, Norman's just a psycho. And he, he's literally called Norman Bates, you know, like Norman as in Norman Bates, like multiple times in the book. But it's, it's interesting that you pointed out the the dual narrators here, because uh, my revisiting uh, this book was through uh, the audiobook. And have you listened to the audiobook? No, I'm too scared. I don't want that guy's voice in my head. It it's so the audiobook is credited to uh, uh, Blair Brown, who is the uh, uh, is a female uh, narrator. Very good call to have her be the main reader. But what who is not credited is every single time they go to a Norman scene, Stephen King reads <gasps> all the Norman what? stuff. Right. Whoa! Yeah, Whoa. so. I did and not know that. Usually when there's multiple readers, it'll say that on the on the credits. But no, it's just credited solely to Blair Brown. But Stephen King comes in and reads everything that's from Norman's perspective. Wow. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to do. I'm not sure that I think it does it work. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because it because the narratives are so split. There's n- there's no point where they're intertwined, where it's Rose saying something, you know, at the beginning of a chapter and then he comes in and it's his point of view. It's, it's, it's so divided in that way as a book in, and it, it really works, you know, just kind of almost as a show level, you know, listening to uh, right. two different people perform it. Yeah. But Stephen King's voice for oh, Norman, Norman. Yeah. That's, it, it just seems like an, such an odd fit to me. But I, then can again, see, I can see him sounding mean if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, he, it's not scary, you know, but it, it it's just I think it's just more in the fact that, you know, it's male and female voice, you know, and, yeah. and you're right, having right. male and female perspective in this thing. Obviously, this is not a, an equal footing thing. This isn't like, you know, the good guy, you know, perspective on one side and the 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 poor downtrodden, you know, girl on the other side. This is, you know, obviously, you know, victim and victimizer, you know, thing. It's not it's not done like a radio play where you're like, oh, Jesus, I'm this is making me nervous. You know, it's not like uh, I can imagine Weber, Stephen Weber, like really making this creepy uh, if he you know, if he was the other narrator or something. But um, I don't know. I just just the shifting of of voices was just enough to you know, I don't know, make it interesting and make it work. You know, I'm, Norman stood out to me so much more in in this reading. I think now because I'm older and um, I just uh, have more experience with shitty dudes than I did when I was <laughs> when I was younger. But I think something that 
and maybe because I was watching a true crime documentary while I was um, while I was reading this book, but I, this. There's this element that Rose sort of taps into this almost mythological strength and she gets all this mm-hmm. myth- mythological help. But I think there's also a s- aspect of Norman that is is fantastical. It's like this fantasy of a competent abuser. You know, we'd all we so, so many people watch true crime documentaries and, and serial killer things like loving to believe that all people who are violent against women are cunning and they're like evil geniuses. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why it's so hard to catch. And that's why they're still in our society. Cause they're just so smart and they're just so hard to catch. When in reality, most of them are fucking idiots, like mm-hmm. absolute fucking idiots. Like the, the, I was watching um, this documentary that's on Hulu now called wild crimes. And it was the story about this man who killed his wife. And he literally like got a map and put an X on the spot where he was going to kill his wife and like <laughs> left it in his truck, like mm-hmm. leaving his fucking murder map around. But in, like in reality, <laughs> that's how so much of what men like th- this are like. And it, it, it was very interesting to me that we so want to believe that because there's so much in, in this in the story like nor it's almost described as if norman has like a, his, his own supernatural power i think what does she call what does he call it the the voice or the knowing or something mm-hmm. um the turning or the so, so this is, I, for, I forget the phrase but um Rose describes that Norman has this sort of almost psychic ability to find his uh, his prey, you know, mm-hmm. his his victims, uh, whoever he's looking for. That he's use he uses a lot as a cop, but he's using it on her. And we all love to believe again that men like this uh, have stuff like that, but normally they're like just fucking dopes. Well, to your point, there there comes a, a sequence where it feels like Rose and Norman are heading to a certain point where Rose is going to this, uh, this kind of concert thing that's being put on by the women shelter people. And Norman finds out that, you know, that that's going on and has tracked her to that particular shelter, but she's moved out. So she, he knows that she's going to be there. And you think this is going to be where they have their confrontation at this kind of outdoor fair thing. And, uh, he, he doesn't, that's not where it happens. Like he kind of fucks things up. Things happen, you know, and, and, uh, he, he hurts people, but he also gets his ass beat real and bad. he gets pissed on. The best scene in the entire is <laughs> <laughs> the best scene in the entire book because there's something something that they ta- that Stephen King touches on in this book that I think is so true to reality is it's not violence that gets through to this guy. It's only he only really starts losing it and fucking up when the women at the women's shelter who work with the women's shelter and Rose start insulting him. And start right. taking right. him down him. in that way. Right. Like there's the scene where Gertie, who she's this woman who works with the woman's shelter and she teaches them self-defense. She's really good at um, mixed martial arts. And she there's a scene where she's she catches Norman attacking one of the women there and she starts fighting him and she's kicking his ass. But it isn't until she sits on it because the, the scene starts with her t- like in the classic Stephen King way, like her own internal dialogue and all the thoughts she's thinking. And she's like, man, I get really got to piss. And she ends up pinning Norman down and pissing all over his face. And like, that's the thing that sets him off. It's not that she threw him into a garbage can. It's not that she's really kicking his ass. It's that she degraded him. And that's the thing he really can't take. And I mean, you both deal with people online, especially like angry men online. You know mm-hmm. what that is. That's, that's exactly how it is. Right. Yeah. That's why it's easier not to engage. 
That's why Scott you know, pisses on people who bother him on Twitter. <laughs> That's the VIP service that I <laughs> uh, for, for my angriest followers. Um, but yeah, of course. And that's right in the vein with, you know, the, the kind of assholes that, that Norman is, these real life monsters. Like you could stab Norman, you could shoot at him, you could do whatever. And you absolutely get the impression that he'll just shrug that shit off. But it's once you humiliate him, that's when it, it really kicks into overdrive. And that is like, you know, people on Twitter. That's why you don't engage with them. If fucking, they say something stupid to you and you, you come back and, you know, sort of knock them off their feet a little bit. You know, now they're real pissed. Now they're going to, you can block them, but now they're going to set up a second account so they can just keep talking shit and blah, blah, blah. Mm. It's psychotic, frankly. Yes. And and that, I mean, that's the, that's the exact scene where Norman finds the, the bull mask and he starts putting it Mm -hmm. on, uh, and to the point where he, it molds to his face. Like he can't take it off anymore. And then they end up going into the painting and Norman becomes the minotaur in the labyrinth. Um, and I just, in my own experiences, like that's, that's how men like that are like, (laughs) you know, it's stuff like that, that sets them off and it becomes, they become so completely irrational. I mean, there's this, this whole book is filled with like very over the top dad jokes. Like even the title Rose matter, like it took me a really long time to realize that, because the, the, what the main character Rose calls the woman in the painting is Rose matter. And she's just, you know, this supernatural version of herself. She's just her, but matter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's the same thing with Norman. He literally, he's become, he's a bullish guy and he becomes a bull. Have you had your own Norman? Have you had someone that either, you know, hopefully they weren't abusive, but felt like over time revealed themselves to be psychotic? Yes, absolutely. I think most women online have dealt with something like this. Um, but I think a lot of, um, a lot of straight women have exes like this. Um, I think that is why this book really hit home so much more for me. Uh-huh. Um, and why I was like, wow, I really liked this book. I mean, this book gets so much hate. And I kind of understand why, because at the time when it was released, people were waiting for another Dark Tower book. Like a, a book about women and women's issues uh, is definitely not what Stephen King's fan base was looking for when this book came mm-hmm. out. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I've, I mean, I haven't had the experience of like going into a labyrinth and fighting a supernatural bull. Um, <laughs> maybe that would be more fun uh, than some of the bad relationships that I've had. Uh, <laughs> but I definitely really, um, uh, I relate to Rose. And I think this book is really important because it's, it, unless you've had experiences like this, it's so e- like in the beginning, you know, when you're hearing about all the horrible things Rose is going through, you're like, Oh, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just get out of there? And it's so easy to say that if you've never been in a situation like that. And even in the book, um, I, I actually think that Steve, Stephen King does a very good job of writing Rose because she's so almost embarrassed about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does, she's so afraid that she's not going to be able to get the help that she needs uh, from the women's shelter. Cause they're going to find out that it took her nine years to leave. And she's just, she's so worried about how long it took her. And I think that's such a very real thing. I think everybody assumes and hopes that, you know, it's like the way that people feel when they watch like spy movies, they're like, Oh, I could totally do that. You know, I could totally jump off a train if I really needed to. Uh, But when something, some shit goes down, it's very rare that, that people are able to sort of muster up some, some moxie and, and, and do something. When I lived in Brooklyn, uh, six years ago, it was 
uh, Christmas of 2015. Uh, I was on the subway. Uh, I was on the F train going to have dinner with friends. And there was no, it was Christmas night um, and nobody was around. And a guy started following me and reached up my skirt and grabbed me. And like up until that point, I like, you know, in, in my brain, I was like, if anyone, because I would lived, had been living in Brooklyn for a while, if anyone touches me, I'm going to put, I'll push them down the stairs. I'll do something. And the thing I fucking did was I froze and then I ran. And luckily, like I was, I, when I was living in Brooklyn, I was a runner. I used to run five miles at a time and I wasn't wearing heels because I'm shitty in heels. So I was able to, to, to get some speed up. And by the time I look back, I like found a group of people and he was gone. Um, mm. But uh, again, it's so, it's so easy to read Rose Matter and be like, oh, if Norman fucked with me, I would have done like, I would have done something. It's no, you fucking wouldn't have, you wouldn't have done anything. It's like you freeze in those situations. And that's why I think there's so much of that experience that Stephen King captures in this book. I don't know if his wife has ever dealt with anything like that and he talked to her about it or if Stephen King has ever dealt with someone abusing him. I don't know, but he actually, I, I think he writes the experience pretty well. I mean, obviously it's a very, very dated book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, problematic stuff in here, but I think he does a, does a great job. And it's, um, uh, I think Rose is very, um, uh, is a symp- sympathetic character, empathetic character, depending on who you are. I think he did a great job with her. Yeah. And this one came. This one came out like just a couple years after he did uh, the back-to-back thing with uh, Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's yes. Game. Clearly, mm-hmm. women were on his mind a lot during this period in the nineties. I'd be I'd be curious to know if that's like a reaction to critics on some of his earlier novels that maybe he wasn't writing female characters strongly enough or you know it's huh. or whether or not you know this was this came out of conversations he had with tabby or you know who who, mm. who fucking knows you know but it's, yeah it's interesting it's interesting because this is this is in the years fair these are the novels like fairly quickly after he got sober right so mm-hmm. this is he had a couple of his his uh like fun books in there like needful things and and kind of the big Aaron, only you would books. call needful things a fun book <laughs> but yeah well in comparison to Dolores claiborne oh, and, okay fair and, enough, fair and, enough. <laughs> and rose matter but yeah the the concept is fun you know selling your soul to the devil you know and, and the mayhem that ensues within a town uh but this you know these are both Dolores claiborne in particular feels very tied to to, to Rose Matter, they're both told from the perspective of of uh, somebody in an in abusive uh, relationship, and both both women end up off in their husbands. <laughs> Spoilers yeah. for both. I um, mean, to to bring it back around to something not so serious, I, I think that's why people are so obsessed with Chet Buggins, mm. um, and I, I think that people are so obsessed with Chet Buggins in the same way that dad culture has become so huge in the past few years uh-huh. is because so many shitty men have ruined those things, like ob- like slamming beers is objectively cool like so many things in like power metal is awesome fanny packs are cool like there's so many like silly stereotypical like dad culture things that um are actually awesome but they got so woven in with the stereotype of a dad of like shitty toxic dudes um that people have wanted it seems like people have recently especially the queer community have wanted to take that back and i think that's why 
I mean, Jeremy and I started joking about Chuck Buggins because the idea of a guy who embodies all of those stereotypes, but like respects women and like is cool, like a cool, good dude is so appealing. Like I, I, re- I think that people love Chuck Buggins because of their daddy issues. Hmm. That's an interesting theory. I mean, I am the Dr. Loomis of Chet Buggins. So. <laughs> you may have uncovered the psychology behind it. My my theory would have been because they think he's fucking badass. It's true. Mm. Chet you know, Buggins so is So you have a, a much more nuanced take on this situation. Chet yeah. Buggins is a badass with healthy masculinity. And I think that is something that is so rare and mm-hmm. that we all long for so much that uh that's why people people love chuck buggins and that's why people daddy culture started hmm. i mean scott you know i might be the dr loomis of chuck buggins you were the dr loomis of daddy culture yeah daddy culture is wild dude this is something that only really became apparent after spending you know living online over a certain number of years and not even then until you know i started getting really active on twitter and it's just like everything's fucking daddy over there you know the the range of things that people want to fuck on Twitter is out of control. You know, someone and someone yet had you a, were surprised that people want to bone Chet Buggins. I guess so because he doesn't. <laughs> we haven't, you know, heretofore we have not heard from Chet Buggins. We have not seen an actual Buggins. <laughs> you know, and so I, I guess it's. I mean, that's just advanced fanfic. At that point, <laughs> you haven't but, got you know, it straight from the Venom movie. Mouth. <laughs> you know, there were like there's a Venom movie. There's years of artwork and uh, stories involving Venom that uh, people could could kind of draw from to to build charge their horniness levels. Um, <laughs> Chuck, I feel like doesn't have that sort of runway, but he ha- does have a raw energy that people respond to. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually really glad that you brought up Twitter. Um, this is something else that we were talking about a little while ago, but I think so because Rose Matter is like almost universally panned. People say that it's there. It is his worst book. He doesn't like it. Um, uh, you know, if you if you look, if you read it, I don't think there's a single essay about Rose Matter online that is positive. Maybe I should write one. Uh, all of them say that it's, if not his worst, one of his worst novels. And I really think that it was the victim of, do you guys ever see this happen online where um, all of a sudden someone likes something or uh, people online dislike a, they like dislike a comic, they dislike a book, they dislike a movie. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. everybody, it's just like, it just like poisons the atmosphere and people just stop liking it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's cycles to that though. Cause it'll go from like, this is the worst thing everybody acknowledges is the, this sucks. And then, 10 years later it's this is actually everybody's wrong this is the best thing and then that becomes the the dominant thing and i can point at something here and it's gonna get me in trouble but i'm gonna fucking say it anyway because i lived through this oh fuck and and all you motherfuckers that are now here for the brendan fraser assance or whatever and fucking love the mummy everybody hated the fucking mummy when it came out everybody fucking hated the the mummy when it came out I'm here for it is it was uh, slightly misunderstood because it was sold as a horror movie and that's not the movie it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm here that now with all that is all that shit has died down. You can like it for the goofy adventure movie it is. Uh, 
but like at no point, you know, here's the thing is, is uh, if people were here saying, yay, Brendan Fraser, you know, we like him because he's that doofy guy from the mummy movies. Great. If they say, you know, he's misunderstood as an actor because look at his performance in gods and monsters, gods and monsters is, is an incredible, you know, great performance from this guy. Great. But nobody's fucking pointing to that movie. They're saying he's a great actor and has been, and look at the mummy movies. And it's like, no, sir, I am here foot down. Brendan Fraser is not good in those mummy movies. I am definitely not wading into that debate with you. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I really think that social media has tainted the way that we – um, hmm. we all absorb media and what the way we think about media. There's a, there's a, a nonfiction writer that I love called Samantha Irby. And she was talking in her newsletter about why she deleted her Twitter. Cause she was hmm. talking about this experience that she had of watching an episode of a TV show. That was like a new TV show that was coming out. And then her being like, wow, I really like that. And then at the same time, she, her brain formulated the opinion. I think this is good. Her, her first response or like immediate backlash in her own brain was like, I should check Twitter to make sure this is, this is, bad in some way you know Mm -hmm. and i really think that it is poisoned the way that we absorb media and i think that is a very early version of what happened to rose matter Hmm. that's a good theory as good as any as i've heard you know and and that's right you know i you see another variation i want to talk about on on this phenomenon is like something i saw recently with uh denis villeneuve and some mm-hmm. of the comments he made about about Dune going to HBO Max and theatrical, right? And so he had, to be fair, you know, whatever it was he said was was kind of annoying. You know, I, I love Villeneuve, but it was <laughs> exacerbating in a way that it really didn't need to be. And it was the kind of thing where you read the quote. I don't remember what it was, or or, or I'd relay it, but. Um, was the sort of thing where you read it and you're like, come on, man, you're just fucking giving them ammo now. Like, don't, don't do this. And sure enough, like there was a day on Twitter not long ago where like people were like, well, I never liked a rival anyway, or I fucking, mm-hmm. you know, this guy's movies always sucked. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to play uh-huh. that fucking game. Just cause you, just cause he said an annoying thing in an interview doesn't mean we get to wipe out years worth of amazing work by this guy. Like it's, and he hadn't even done anything. He just expressed an opinion. Um, right. the, the idea of of people turning on things like that, I think, is is terrifying. And you see it all the goddamn time. You know, that's that's what it is. It's a machine for that for that kind of uh, outrage. Yeah. Well, anytime I've seen something like that pop up, I just have to try to remind myself that that you know, year after year. Uh, event after event, thing after thing, you know, Twitter has proven that it is not representative of of the real world. You know, like nobody in the real world gives a shit about Denny Villeneuve saying, you know, hey, I made this to be seen on the big screen. Uh, I'm kind of pissed off that it's going to the small screen, you know, at the same time as the big screen, you know, like in the real world with the real world shit going on out there, it really doesn't matter. And it's just people wanting to get mad at something and, and you know, kind of beefing up their own level of anger, much like I just did with the Brendan Fraser thing. I don't really give a shit if people <laughs> love Brendan Fraser. I'm happy the dude's getting, you know, getting some love. He seems like a nice guy, um, you know, but sometimes when you're on those platforms, you just, you have, you feel like you have to have a strong opinion. It can't be a moderate opinion. It can't be something where a nuanced opinion, it can't be anything like that. You have to have a strong for or against. That's the only thing that Twitter really allows. 
Yeah, I would be very interested to see what would happen if we cleaned up some of the problematic shit in in Rose Matter and re-released mm. it now. I mean, a book about a psychopathic cop that gets his face peed on. I mean, it would be a number one New York Times bestseller. I feel like even with a rewrite of this material, I think Stephen King would get in trouble for writing Rose Matter right now. I think it would be a thing oh, about a him. Yeah, I think that would be the number one complaint. Like, who are you to tackle these these issues? I, I can maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's no. I don't. I, I, feels I, like I actually don't think that you're wrong, um, which is something that I have really complicated feelings about because I am surprise, 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 a woman. And, <laughs> and I obviously like, I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I said that I didn't get excited about, um, everything that, that women do, you know, I will, I'll watch basically any horror movie as long as it's directed by a woman. I love, I am definitely gravitated towards things being made by women. Um, but at the same time, who fucking cares? You know, I right. think it's the thing that drives me nuts about it is that it, there's an urge to stop people from doing one thing as opposed to encouraging people, other people to do that same thing. Like instead of taking chairs away at the table, why don't we just add more fucking chairs? Yeah, for real. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see it as an either or thing, you know, and, and the problem is a lot of people do, you know, that, you know, well, then that's, if we give this movie to a woman or a person of color or, a trans person or whoever the fuck, you know, that means that's one less, Oh, it's one less fucking white guy that gets a, a project, but that's really, those white guys are going to be fine. <laughs> if you haven't Absolutely. noticed, it is the know? funniest thing to me in the world. When I remember I had a date, um, back when I first moved to LA and some guy was telling me, Oh, it's this date did not go well, as you can imagine. But he's like, Oh, it's just so hard to be a white man in Hollywood right now. It's just so hard. And I was like, huh? how many guys just got uh, nominated for best director this year? <laughs> and he was yeah. like, I was like, Oh, all of them. Was it, was it the whole slate was guys. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, there's, because there's so much conversation around it that uh, it feels like things are happening when real, I mean, and things are happening, but it's much slower than people would think. And so instead of it, I just think instead of attacking people for writing something, Maybe we should spend that energy encouraging and supporting the other people, who, like the marginalized people who actually do those things. Right. Well, that all stems from insecurity. I, I mean, your your uh, would be beau that uh, totally fucked things up uh, was. Listen, if if he was Denny Villeneuve, if he was a, a writer of you know, a, I don't know, like a Shane Black stature or anything you know, he wouldn't ha be having that problem. Like it's all insecurity that, you know, m the work isn't good enough to get me to this point. And so I kind of have to rely on being the white guy, you know, the dominant, uh, you know, represented force in, in Hollywood, uh, you know, like, to, oh, to carry me. You actually have to try now. Now that you have competition. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> yeah. But also I think that they're, uh, it's the same, it's flip sides of the same coin because I, just as much as, um, I, I, I want women to be able to make things about men. I think that men should be able to make things about women if they want, <laughs> you yeah. know, cause it's, it's that same, I, same feeling that, oh, well you can't, you can't write about this or you can't make a movie about this because of this. It's, it, it's this other side of the coin. Well, like, oh, gay people could only make movies about gay things. Women can only make movies about women yeah. things. Black people can only tell stories about black things. Like, it right. really, it, 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 I, I just feel like it is so harmful 
Um, I got um, this is one of my one, probably one of my favorite books of the year so far is Grady Hendrix's new um, Final Girl Support Group. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys read it, but it's absolutely fantastic, and it's about a group of women who have all survived like slasher esque attacks. Like there's one, there was one girl who's clearly like the her serial killer was very much like Leatherface, Michael Myers. Like it's very. Um, it's very slashery in that way. And um, when Grady asked me to blurb it, he was just like, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to, exp- I wanted to look at this book and use it as a way to explore why I like watching these movies personally. And the book is absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad that he wrote it. And I, at the same time, I want to, all the female horror authors out there to be supported and be able to write whatever they want too. I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter for Steve. Like Stephen King is Stephen King. He's like, you know, he can do whatever he wants now. Um, but it would be very interesting to me to see the the reaction that this would get. Not to change the subject, but also to change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a segue? This book had a lot more Stephen King Easter eggs in it than I recalled. I had totally yes. forgot Cynthia from Desperation and uh, uh, Regulators pops up here as a character. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Dark Tower shit in here, too. Yeah. Uh, were you all as surprised as I was to I had I, forgotten it completely. I had totally forgotten it. Probably because so much of it I mean, so much of the the there's so much like uh surrounding this book that it was bad and blah 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 that it sort of overshadows its place in the Stephen King universe, I think. I, one of the most universal com- complaints about the book is that they don't like the fantasy elements, the mythological elements. I didn't have a problem with them. I thought it was fine. No, yeah, me too. I mean, it, it feels a little bit Feels like King kind of relies on this a little bit with uh, like I kept thinking of Lisey's story, you know, yeah. every time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Every time she would go into the painting and, you know, it has a very similar vibe. But I think that this version, I guess because it's not as prominent as it is in Lisey's story, that uh, I think this version felt a little bit more, I don't know, authentic to me, easier to read. My memory of reading this, this book came out in 95, I think. And so this would have been one of the first like brand new release books that I, I bought that was Stephen King as I was a Stephen King mega fan. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I, my memory of, of the book is very uh, veiled and convoluted. Like I remember all this stuff being kind of convoluted and, and weird and not really getting it. And then on this reread, I'm like, this is about as straightforward as a book could be. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like metaphysical or anything about going into the painting. You just have to accept she goes into this this painting. And in the painting, it's kind of this fantasy world where her more angry, powerful self, uh, or the mirror of herself is is there. And, uh, you know, the, the baby that she once lost and maybe will regain later, you know, in, in life uh, is there. And the other version of her husband is the Minotaur in the, you know, in, in the middle, middle of this maze. And like uh, all this stuff became much easier to grok. I don't know if it's just because I you know, am an adult man now <laughs> instead of a, a, a newly teen boy when, when I was reading this. But um, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's a fairly straightforward. Yeah. It felt book. less jarring yeah. for sure. Yeah. And she only goes into the painting twice. Right. It's not right. as remember, big of a part of the book. Right. I remember it being like the 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 second half of the whole book. Mm-hmm. And I also remembered it ending very suddenly, but it doesn't. Once she gets back out of the painting for the, the final time, you know, there's like another 70, 80 pages to go. Right. Well, and that, that was interesting to me because uh, at the end, uh, afterward, she kind of has retain some of Rose matters like anger and power. Mm -hmm. And that like starts manifesting itself in her. And I didn't quite understand 
like why that had to happen there. You know, I don't know, maybe I missed something, but, uh, you know, but I do kind of like what it means and, you know, and that she has to essentially check herself, you know, the, the righteous anger doesn't turn into something that's, uh, uh, an abuse of anger, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is, is something I liked, but I didn't, I, I didn't quite understand, uh, you know, the, the reasoning behind, you know, her kind of in, inhabiting some of Rose matters, uh, you know, vengeful, <laughs> vengeful, uh, uh, pissed offness. Well, I mean, I, I, I always took it as, I mean, we all know how Stephen King feels about violence and guns, you know, right. and she uses that violence and power and anger to defeat Norman. But, you know, right. I think it comes at a price for her. And I, I really mm. like the way the, that he, that he did that. And that, you know, she led Norman to be eaten by this scary spider lady. Um, and this like very violent, gross death, which was pretty awesome. Um, yep. but yeah, you know, she still used that and it still made its mark on her. And I, I just thought it was great. I thought it would be, it was, it was so much better than her being able to tap into that, you know, uh, scot-free. Yeah, for sure. And then they lived happily ever after with her pawnbroker, new boyfriend, <laughs> motorcycle riding pawnbroker boyfriend. Here's a question yeah. I have about that boyfriend character. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't talked about him. I'm like, we, we, yeah, we got to tap into Bill. It feels <laughs> it feels weird, doesn't it, that she has a new romance in this book? Like, I I think you could have, I don't know how to put it, but it feels like unrealistic, maybe, for the character. But then again, maybe maybe that's Rose. You know, I like it. But if I if I escape a a violent, you know, or just even if it's just a problematic relationship, the last thing I want to do is get back into another one. But yeah, well, I think it's really hopeful. Um, and I think Stephen King sure. does a good job of showing the sort of variety of reactions to sexual violence with the women at the shelter. You know, there's right, women right. there that'll never date another man. There is her friend Pam, sure. who immediately is like horny for anyone. She wants to get down right away. And Rose, I mean, she's definitely, uh, I see what you mean, Scott. I mean, but she's, at least in the book, she's very reluctant at first. She does try to push Bill away. That's but, true. It is very hopeful to me that she, um, you know, it's almost overwhelming to her because at this point, you know, she's never been, never experienced that kind of love, that kind of affection. And there's something in her that still wants it, even with everything that Norman did to her. And um, I mean, I get that. And I know women that are like that. You know, it sort of reminds me of how controversial the end of Promising Young Woman was Mm. that everybody like the Internet were split in half. Some people were like, this is the best. And the other, other people were like, this is the worst. It's so awful. But I think, you know, this writer, uh, my friend BJ Colangelo, she wrote this incredible piece about it to say that like, every woman reacts to that stuff differently. Some people, some women see stuff like that and they never want to see it again. They never want to be around men again. Some women see that and they find rape revenge movies cathartic. They like watching horror movies. They, you know, it's just, it's such a, um, such a varied reaction. And, uh, I think with the women in the shelter, King did a good job of of showing that. And I, I think King went a little over the top, like Bill's a little bit, a little bit wienery, you know, yeah. but I get it. You know, I, I understand why she would be attracted to someone who's like very concerned with safety and very soft spoken. And like, you know, I loved that. Um, Cause the, um, the woman in the painting tells Rose that bulls will fight, you know, these two, like and she immediately understands it, that Bill is at some point going to have to fight Norman. And I love that. Nor- like Bill basically crumples like a wet tissue under Norman. <laughs> like he's not there to save her. And this book could have very easily swung into 
her finding some other guy and this guy swoops in and saves her. And it's not. And I think I really, really like that. Very fair. Yeah. Very fair. No, in fact, she kind of becomes the the Ripley of the situation when the Marines crumple in aliens, mm-hmm. right? And it's like all these badass, you know, people like they're not there to protect <laughs> to protect her. She ends up being the one there to protect them uh, because she knows what's coming and and they don't and they they have no understanding of of what's what's they're about to do. Um, now, I mean, Bill in this doesn't have the same the same machismo about him, you know, he's just in the dark. Uh, but like, I, I agree, like this could have easily in lesser hands have turned into even a tag team thing where it's, you know, it's Bill, the man and Rose, the woman, you know, kind of mm-hmm. standing up against this with their new found partnership, but it isn't, it's Rose's fight. And it, she's and like, it, just it, close it, your eyes, sweetie. I'm going to take care of this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you some amnesia drops from, from the well. Yeah. So you don't have to remember the bad things. And yeah, I like it as an example of like, Hey, like you said, it's hopeful. So it's like, not every guy is out there to dominate you, you know? So may, you know, maybe there is hope. It won't be a perfect relationship. There will be arguments. There will be stuff, but you know, it's all starting from a base place of, of love and care, you know, and that does exist and that is possible for you. So, you know, I don't know. I liked it. I I, I like Bill. I like his dad cycle. Like it's so, <laughs> right. I, I, I just thought it was such a cool way for Stephen King to be like, all right, this guy, he, he, I'm going to, I'm going to take all these like stereotypical um, sort of hallmarks of masculinity and like make them, you know, a little bit more softened. Like he's got a motorcycle, but it's really safe. And it's like one of those, like, <laughs> what do they call those? Um, oh my God. There's a, oh my God. Sorry. Uh, there's a bobcat walking past my office right now. Oh my God. What? What is it? Goldthwait? Oh my god, this is weird. Oh, it's looking at me. It's looking at me. Ask him if it wants to talk on the show. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so freaked out. It's, it's looking right at me. Have you ever read any Stephen King? Oh my god, <laughs> Ask it's him looking- a Stephen King origin story. Hold on, I'm te- Scott. I'm going to text you this right now. Hold on. Actually, I'll DM it to you both on Twitter. Super distracting. <laughs> it's like, no, I want to see it. Now. I'm in the mountains now, oh, baby. Look at, look at that sweet boy. Oh, he's not even that big. You want to go out there, tough guy? Go ahead and talk to him. Have a little chat. <laughs> Take him for a ride on our, our dad motorcycle. How yeah, big well, is he, though? Like, Because in the photo, he looks like about the size of a cat. He's about twice the size of a cat. Okay, right on. I need you to go out there and stand next to it so I have a frame of reference. <laughs> I need you to get a ruler out and hold it next to him. <laughs> yeah, just, just bring some friskies and uh, give him some pets and he'll be fine. I actually, one the other day, I saw one going through the yard with a ground squirrel in its mouth it was pretty freaky hell yeah nature doing what nature does <laughs> um sorry anyway do you, well do you have any other things that you wanted to talk about in the book not well not really but there is one thing i wanted to say and i did not find an organic place to fit it into this conversation so i'm just gonna shoehorn it in here at the end do it um i remember that i saw sleeping with the enemy mm-hmm. shortly before i read this book and I'm guessing like my parents must have rented Sleeping with the Enemy or something because that came out in 91 and this is 95. But I finally saw that right before I read Rose Matter. And in my mind, the memory has always like lurked of, oh, Stephen King wrote this in response to Sleeping with the Enemy. Like, and so I've always had this <laughs> weird cops, association dude. between Just... Norman and, Pat- well, that's... and Patrick Bergen, <laughs> which... Yeah. <laughs> Is Don't fuck totally cops. not what Norman looks like. Yeah. Well, I've been trying not to. So. <laughs> I've been trying to quit. 
Yeah. <laughs> Trying to cut down. Pick the wrong week to stop fucking cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please call this episode I picked the wrong week to stop fucking cops. And it doesn't it doesn't really have many similarities other than this woman being stalked by, you know, her husband. But you know, in sleeping with the enemy, she I had to I had to look up the Wikipedia page to refresh my memory. But she like she doesn't really fake her death, but she's presumed dead. I didn't remember that about it. But for whatever reason, because that's how that's how basic my fucking brain was when when I I guess when I was like 14, 15 years old was uh, bad guy chasing woman equals sleeping with the enemy. <laughs> well, I mean, he well, does crank out novels so quickly. You never know. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, true. it's actually because I was going to make the connection a little earlier, too, because we were talking about like, oh, is this, you know, King, what was going on in King's life where he has all these books in a row about, you know, uh, abused women, you know, finding their power or whatever. And something in the back of my mind was like, this is the era of sleeping with the enemy and and the the psychosexual thrillers and stuff. And that's just kind of what was in the, hmm. the creative uh, well at that point, I guess. Maybe it's maybe it was in the mix. You know, what I, I something that I think is great about this book and that is a pitfall of so many other books that speaking of men writing women, books of this ilk or movies of this ilk that are created by men is that she doesn't get any special powers from being abused. Mm, right, right, right. Which is the fucking worst. And I'm very glad that that's another thing that Stephen King stayed clear of. Like what's a good, give me an example. Uh, the magicians is a big one. Like a woman gets raped and suddenly she discovers she has magical powers. Oh, no, like it's stuff like that. That was her Hogwarts. Basically uh, <laughs> fucking, fucking brutal. Um, Jesus. And I just hate that so much. It's like one of my least favorite tropes ever. And I'm very proud of Stephen King for not doing that. Like it would, right. it would have been so easy for him to fall into it. And uh, he totally managed to avoid it. Yeah. That feels a touch minimizing. Yeah, it's just gross. You know, <laughs> you just don't need to do that. <laughs> True. So, yeah. have we run our course on this? Do we have anything else we want to add on Rose Matter? Actually, just, like, I do would... you, how would you, you said earlier you'd be interested in, in working on a film version of this. Oh, it'd be so like, good. How would you go about doing it? Give me your elevator pitch. I do think that it would be important to show Norman's parts of this. So, I think just like a straight adaptation would be cr- pretty fucking cool. Right. For episodic, you could maybe trade episodes. Yeah, I just think, I mean, obviously it would be content warnings up the fucking wazoo. Oh, um, Jesus, yeah. But I think, again, I just <clears> think <throat> it's such a such a relevant book right now. It's such a relevant story. And to see how men like like Norman, like I was talking earlier, like he doesn't, he doesn't even stick out amongst his friends, you know, and how that, that the sort of like male culture both encourages and fosters this, but also protects it. And I think interrogating stuff like that is, is something that media really should do right now. And mm. uh, I think this would make a great, a great story. It would, and also it would be cool. Like I, something that we didn't touch on at all that I, I, I sort of want to want to right now is I love minotaurs. I wish there were more minotaur <laughs> stories. I think minotaurs are cool as fuck. I think labyrinths yeah. are cool as fuck. Agreed. And Agreed. Like, just they're just so awesome and i know that it's interesting um how much stephen king loves labyrinths and minotaurs i mean this book is Mm -hmm. like a it's so similar to the shining in that way i mean if you put a bull if you put a bull mask on jack at the end of the shining (laughs) it's the basically the same scene yeah Um, i just think that would be really cool to do in a movie 
It'd be tough to pull off, but I think that you're kind of selling me on the idea of the validity of it. I think yeah, you'd have I mean, to tone about, the violence way down. Oh, you know? sure. You can't see anyone's balls pop on TV. But, <laughs> I mean, no. I, I, just the, well, that. Well, on a streaming network, you could. But. <laughs> just that kind of, the, the, the story of how how Norman it, like came to be and how he, you know, his, the way that he is, is fostered and how it's really, because the thing that I love the most about this is that it's not this man that saves her. It's female friendship and female yeah. camaraderie and seeing that in a movie right now, I think would be cool as fuck. Which is another reason to like the bill character. Cause he almost acts as a red herring. Cause you think that that's right. That's going to be it. But it, it you're exactly right. It's the people that step up and actually fight her, uh, her shitty ex-husband or soon to be ex-husband, you know, the ones that are throwing punches. It isn't, it isn't Mr. Mr. Man on his motorcycle. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's all all the uh, other abuse survivors that are, have been around the around her. Yes, yeah. and the, I mean the scene that I think I would love to see is one of my favorite scenes, and because uh, after it's the, towards the end of the book, Norman has crashed this picnic. He is grievously injured. Several of the women there, they don't even realize at that point that he is also broken into the women's shelter. Rose is is it's like completely fraught. She thinks it's her fault. She's so upset, and all the other women just get ready to go back to the picnic, and she's like, "What? What are you doing?" And she and they they all laugh they're like if you think we haven't seen shit like this before like <laughs> the fact that norman went through all this trouble and he did all this and he's literally turning into a monster and these women like don't even he doesn't even interrupt their picnic like they <laughs> right. just go right back to it like he can't even yeah. stop all this all this hatred and all this violence and he can't even stop a picnic like i i love that so much and i really think that that would make a great story to see right now yeah well the show is Led to people getting paired with Stephen King projects before. Maybe we'll get lucky again. And uh, Someone call me. Yeah. Great ideas for this. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, let's get in one last plug for your book while you're here. That's usually what this point in the show is for. Yes. Uh, well, I will say we're interested if, if the, the discussion we're having in this, the show interests you at all. The whole reason I wanted to write girly drinks is because I was so curious as to how drinking became gendered the idea of something being masculine or feminine even filtered its way into our consumables. <laughs> and I ended up finding so much more than I ever thought. I thought that I was going to have to do a lot of digging and try to find like what the first girly drink was. And it was going to, you know, require a lot of like years of research. And I ended up finding it right away. It goes all the way back to ancient Rome. Like it, this stuff God is damn. around like literally the code of Hammurabi, which we are all taught as the thing that established civilization and justice in the world is the same document that established the patriarchy and established women as being property of men. And I thought I was writing just a book about cocktails, but I ended up writing a book about how patriarchy completely fucks up our entire world. And I mean, obviously it's, it's going to be like lady from the black. Lagoon. There's a lot of swears. There's a lot of dad jokes. It's not just about cocktails. It's also about beer and wine and everything. Thing. And uh, if you are someone who's if you're a foodie person or a culinary person or you're into beer or wine or cocktails or any kind of history, there's something there for you. I'm very proud of it. I hope people like it. <laughs> well, as anyone who's read Lady from the Black Lagoon knows, you're a hell of a writer. Oh, I'm very Scott. excited to uh, to read this one. Uh, I wish we had had a chance to do it before the show, but fucking we've been on a tear lately also i don't know i was gonna say you guys have been crushing it but very much looking forward to reading it uh i am interested to see what happens what 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 your both of your brains are like having basically read nothing but stephen king novels for two years now (laughs) uh 
about still, the same as what it was in middle yeah, school and high school. Which still is the smooth same like an egg, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Are you thinking in New England slang now? N- not a not a single wrinkle up top. Just <laughs> brain is just pudding. But thank you very much for being here. I'm sure you're going to be back. And uh, where can people find? They, like when this episode airs, I think the book will have just come out. So you can get where it can anywhere. people find it? Um, and anywhere you buy books, I also read the audiobook. It's that's something we also didn't talk about is how much mm. audiobooks are in Rose Matter. Um, oh, right. she ends up yeah, becoming an audiobook profession. narrator, what, which is an, another interesting thing hearing an audiobook of <laughs> about a story about somebody becoming an audiobook narrator. That is really yeah. funny. But I, I read the, the audiobook for girly drinks. Um, the e, ebook and print versions have pictures. So you can get it anywhere um, Barnes and Noble, indie bookstores, bookshop.org, Amazon, wherever you get books. Um, they, it is available. I obviously hope that you get it from an indie bookstore. Um, if you order it from Skylight Books, um, I will be able to sign it for you. Otherwise, yeah, just get it, get it anywhere. Will you do a little sketch of Chut for anybody that, that uh, if you one? order it from Skylight Books and ask for it signed, and you can you can get it personalized, and I will draw you a photo of Chut Buggins if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, I think you also, probably just sold a few hundred more copies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you were interested in seeing what Chut Buggins looks like, you can go onto the Kingcast store right now and buy your own Chut merch. So that is mm. true. That is true. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being here, Mal. And we can't wait to have you back for your sixth triumphant appearance. I know. I've got to, I got to pass Flanagan and see. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to whoop their asses over time. <laughs> but thanks for being here today. This was great. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Mallory for once again gracing the ears. Ear holes? That, that's, that, that sounds terrible. I'm not going to say holes. that. Yeah. We don't want to say ear holes. ear holes. What are, what are ear holes? Hold on. I'll look it up. What are ear holes called? Uh, this would be the ear canal, also called the external acoustic metus. Mm. M-E-A-T-U-S. So thank you, Mallory, for grazing <laughs> the external acoustic metus of our listenership. She'll Once be again. delighted to hear this. <laughs> and how would she hear it? Through through what? Uh, her external acoustic metus, presumably. Exactly. Yes, unless Mallory senses sound differently than the rest of us, which is entirely possible. She is, it is possible. clearly a superhuman, and we love her. Uh, always a pleasure to have her on the show, and also a pleasure to revisit Rose Matter. How about that shit? I know. that that's, uh, It's always great when you kind of go back to something that you had middling feelings on and, and come away going, you know what, I actually can can jive with this one this time. That certainly certainly was the case this week and uh, and no better person to explore that and have, have those feelings with than, than Mallory. She is welcome back anytime. Any uh, more stories about Chet Buggins, the resident mascot of the King cast? What's not to love every time Mallory comes on the show? We get also some baseball buy her book. sounds in there. Yeah. Yeah. And buy her book, Girly Drinks. I've heard good things. I haven't read it yet. She hasn't sent me a copy. That's a failing of Mallory that Mallory and I are going to have to work out on an interpersonal level. But uh, I've heard I've heard great things about the book. I can't wait to read it. And uh, we do hope that KingCast listeners will pick it up. For sure. So speaking yeah. of all-timer returning guests, mm. I suppose we should talk about next week's episode. 
Yeah, we're going to break protocol just a little bit because we've been a little public with this already with this title. So we know that when we announce the title that people who follow us, at least on Twitter, which is uh, at KingCast19, by the way, uh, will already know it. So why don't we just tell everybody next week you get a twofer. That's right. Two guests on one title. The title is No Smoking. The Hindi adaptation of Quitters Incorporated, as previously seen. In the classic anthology movie that uh, Rich Summer hates called Cat's Eye. Correct. Uh, and this is a whole feature made made in uh, Hindi language. There is a Bollywood number in it. Uh, it is nuts. It a is sexy crazy. one, I would I would point out. A Bob Fosse style Bollywood number, no less. For real. Pretty hot. Pretty hot and, stuff. And so our guests are returning champion Kate Siegel. And she is bringing along with her her Midnight Mass co-star, Rahul Kohli. So we have Rahul and Kate together on the KingCast. At last. My only thoughts on this episode going into it are that listeners should be prepared for some debate. (laughs) Uh, We were not all seeing eye to eye on this one. And there's a point where Kate and I, I feel like I got a little strident. In my my defense of of no smoking, but mm. I, I stand by the message. But um, uh, I do feel like I went maybe a smidge overboard in in defending that movie yeah. at, at a certain point. Is it was that your impression? Did I go too far? Well, you were in the pro this movie rocks camp, and uh, I was somewhere in the middle, and they they were a little on the end, but they all of us enjoyed the movie. Um, and I guess we should probably tell you that the only way that you can see it in the states is to sign up for this free like i guess it's not free but you sign up for a free trial for this channel called eros which you can get through eros 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 now eros obviously has some erotic connotations to it (laughs) eros as you know was the greek god of love aka cupid probably into some hot fucking this is not a porn channel, despite what its name would imply. <laughs> and you can uh, get that through Amazon. Is that right? Yes. Just go to Amazon. Look up No Smoking uh, on Prime, and it'll give you the option to watch it. But you got to sign up for a seven day free trial or some shit like that, which I just realized I have not yet canceled. But that is a way to see this movie. There are other nefarious methods, I imagine, in which one could see this. But we encourage you to just sign up for the service. You remember to cancel it and uh, see it in the the best quality currently available, as far as we know. It's not the easiest title to 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 watch. It's not, but it's also one of the more fascinating uh, King adaptations that uh, I certainly didn't know existed whenever we started this podcast. Right, and it's barely a King adaptation. I'm going to put that out there right now. It is it is absolutely taken from Quitters Inc. But he is not credited in any way. Well, I do think it's a reasonable adaptation of this story. Um, It's not advertised as a King thing. You would never know it, maybe, if you weren't a King reader. But the basics are there. You know, it's it's all there to be found. They just do some really wild shit with it. Whether or not you react to it well, I mean, that's that's between you and your God. I I had a blast watching this fucking thing. Again, Eric was in the middle. Our guests uh, maybe didn't like it as much as I did. But uh, that creates a very interesting conversation. And and I would also like to add that you should absolutely seek this movie out and watch it beforehand, because if you do not do that, you aren't going to understand what the fuck we're talking about in this episode. The, the movie is really weird. 
It goes to some strange places, a lot of curveballs along the way. It will sound like gibberish to you. We had no idea what we were getting into when <laughs> we signed up for this. But as soon as we started talking, I was like, holy shit, we are in deep trouble because it, it, it defies easy description. Right. You can do it literally, but, you know, uh, without having seen it, I think listeners will be confused. So please, for the love of God, seek out a copy of No Smoking before next week, before you listen to this episode. It would also behoove you to finish Midnight Mass if you haven't, because we do spend a good chunk of time talking about Midnight Mass and especially some spoilery stuff from the end of the end of the series at the beginning of this episode. So you got a little homework to do. Before next week is what we're saying. Yeah, how's that feel? Homework. Everyone loves it. Well, what about uh, our Patreon on Friday? What do we have going on? Uh, on Patreon, uh, we are talking to uh, a friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of Jason Bailey. He is a freelance film critic of some renown and also an author, a podcast host, all kinds of things. A jack of all trades, really. But he has a new book out called Fun City Cinema, which is about basically the relationship between movies made in New York versus the history of New York over a hundred year period. And we figured this was the guy to talk to about, say, Stephen King's New York set stories. So you're going to hear from him about Quitters Incorporated. We're going to talk about the Lincoln Tunnel sequence in The Stand. We're going to get into some Dark Tower shit. We don't go through every single story that King has ever written that was set in New York because we'd be there all day. And a lot of the times, you know, the, the setting is incidental, but uh, we went through a couple of major cases, uh, several of them, in fact, and uh, I'm going to just gonna be honest with you. It was a tenuous idea for an episode, but I, <laughs> I, we recorded it this morning and I had a fucking blast. You know, there's, there's quite a bit to talk about in relation to King in New York. So tune in for that this Friday on the KingCast Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Sounds great. Yeah, we got some good stuff coming up. Looking forward for you all hearing the No Smoking episode next Wednesday with Rahul Kohli and Kate Siegel. And once again on Friday on Patreon, we got King's New York City. Mm-hmm. And please don't yell at me for getting into a debate with Kate. I know I know how many fans she has versus the number of fans I have, and she wins. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all in good fun. Uh, we love Kate. Consider her a friend. So please just please go easy on me when, <laughs> when you hear the episode and hear us, hear mom and dad yelling at each other. <laughs> Not since the great poutine debate of 2021. <laughs> has there no, been gets, such a contentious it, moment on it the gets a, it gets a little heated for a second but you know again you know we can have disagreements on the show it's it's possible for us to have differing opinions and whatnot you know it's all in the spirit of of love and friendship fellowship and and our love for for stephen king that's so beautiful scott i'm yeah i, I couldn't couldn't have said it better i don't have a button for this that was just you know <laughs> Uh, I just thought I'd try earnestness on for for a moment. It was disgusting and I won't do it again. But yeah, it doesn't suit you. Yeah, gross. (laughs) So I can't wait for everybody to hear that episode next Wednesday. And I guess we'll see you guys on the Patreon on Friday for that New York talk. Adios, everyone. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.